Well, hey, church. <laughs> he gets paid to say that, so the rest of you. Hmm. Uh, if you are a young person, you can head to children's worship now, and the rest of us, you can grab your Bible. Uh, you can find the book of Zephaniah. So we're going to spend some time in a uh, minor prophet this evening. Uh, while you're turning there, let me begin, uh, just give a few words about uh, what we did this afternoon. Um, I know many of you were there, and so I'll, I'll kind of give you at least a, a bird's eye view of our uh, fall block party, which this is the fourth-ish year that we've done the fall block party. Might be the fifth. I think it's the fourth. Um, out of it, uh, we've, we've really gotten to see the Lord working in that, uh, sort of sort of giving, um, I, I think the vision behind it for us was, was giving an opportunity to take um, what's, what's a pretty secular holiday and, and maybe has like some dark pieces to it uh, and use that as an opportunity and a springboard to do something uh, that really identifies uh, in, a, in a fun, practical, uh, loving way uh, our care for the community and the people that exist in our community. And so uh, we've gone about that now for a few years and really wanted to do that. Uh, we altered it a little bit this year. So if you've been in the past, you know that we've done kind of some outdoors and some indoors and sort of had this hybrid event and uh, that most of the candy that we were giving away was was through like a series of games. And then we also had a whole bunch of other things going on. And so uh, we knew kind of in the COVID world that that was going to change things. And so we, we sort of revamped the format quite a bit. And so we did this trunk or treat thing, right? Like you walk through and you get candy out of trunks of cars and or the backs of cars. And uh, that was spectacular. Uh, you know, if you were, you were, even if you had a car and you were there the whole time, you probably didn't have the opportunity to kind of look up and see, but um, we had, we had more kids. I don't know exactly how many kids we had. We had more kids than we've, we've ever had in this event before. Um, and I do know we, we got somewhere in the neighborhood of like eight to 9,000 pieces of candy and we don't have any left. Like, it's a good thing there's no dentists here, right? And the Jacksons gave out like 6,000 of those pieces. I mean, so the rest of us just had a couple pieces to give away. And uh, no, it's, it's really great. Um, we had this, this really awesome time. But uh, one of the things that coming into it, we, uh, like maybe, maybe it was an oversight on my part until uh, just a day or two before was in the past, we've had all of these different kind of stations and things going on. And so uh, because we didn't have a bunch of people decorating their cars to uh, make a trunk or treat scene to give away candy, uh, we, we would have been able to run uh, that event on 10 to 20 volunteers at the most, and, and we would have been just fine. And so uh, we've had years where we had about that many, and we had years where we had a lot more. Uh, this year, the weather was really nice, so we felt like, okay, we'll probably get more volunteers. However, what we, we didn't really think about is uh, when you sign up 20-some families to decorate their car and them sit out there, you have 30 to 40 to 50 people that are all volunteering in that one area. And so all the other stuff we had to do, uh, I, it was kind of like this week, we went, oh, we have volunteers for all this other stuff. And like, uh, I think I had this real brief moment of panic where I thought, man, maybe there's like a real fatal error in this plan 
that we're not going to have anybody who can volunteer to do a welcome table and set up cider and donuts and help with pumpkin painting and hay rides and uh, just be there to kind of make sure that the, the world doesn't fall apart while this is all happening. And so uh, we thought, and, and even then, uh, there's kind of a, a bold ask to say, hey, 20 families set up cars to, to give out uh, Halloween candy. And, and so uh, out of that, I want to say one of the things that has always been uh, a joy for myself, and I know I know I speak on behalf of Dave and Katie when this this happens as well, uh, is that getting to see us not do the bulk of the work is always a joyous thing. Like not out of laziness, right? Like there's this element of that, right? Like I'll just kick back, let you guys do it, right? Uh, no, it's it's because ultimately. Uh, what we preached on last week, the church is an entity that functions best when it's in unity with one another, surrounded on the central cause of Jesus Christ as going forth most important, superseding all things. And so uh, when we get to witness, what we witnessed this afternoon, which was uh, 50, 60, 70 volunteers from FBC uh, during pandemic outside in like, I'm, I'm sure we're right near tornado winds like half of the time, uh, kind of out experiencing that and like with joy and excitement and enthusiasm serving our community and serving the Lord, uh, that it just is overwhelmingly joyous and exciting for us to be able to watch and witness uh, the way that the Lord is working through you as a church community. And so uh, there weren't, weren't areas that got dropped. There weren't things that we just didn't have uh, the ability to do. And uh, we had all these people come in. And, and I think that the overwhelming feeling as, as those people are exiting is like, this is a place that really cares for me and about me. Uh, and, and ultimately, the glory then belongs to the Lord in all of that, right? That we do this not so that we might be a place that is praised and recognized, but that we would be a place that they would know that we represent the love of Jesus Christ and we want to share the love of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so thank you um, for those of you who served, those of you who didn't. I kind of get a picture, a, a depiction of like what that looks like and how awesome it was. And so I uh, thank you for praying for that and uh, being a part of it in uh, that capacity as well. And so uh, praise the Lord and we're excited to see what he continues to do out of that and things like that and uh, glory to his name all right let's let's pray we'll talk about Zephaniah Heavenly Father I'm grateful for who you are I pray that tonight as, as we study your word it'd be a reminder to us that we worship you all of you, the fullness of your character, the fullness of your being, and, and that we don't um, get to manipulate or depict you in the way that is most comfortable for us, but rather in the way that is true to your character and your being. And so uh, in it, I, I pray that as we study uh, through one of your prophets who, who gives some harsh words and harsh warnings, that it would be an opportunity for us to see the truth in your, your justice, in your righteousness, in your wrath poured out towards sin. Uh, and out of that, that it would increase our affections for you. It would increase our dependency on you. It would increase our desire to be 
of people who know you and follow you with our lives because of the true nature of your character. And so help us with that. Bring a great deal of clarity to that as we preach it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, let me get you into Zephaniah. We're going to try to cover uh, this whole book, this whole minor prophet, just in one night, this this one night, and uh, cover that three-chapter book. Uh, and so I want to want to kind of give you some background, but but essentially kind of framework the summary of what this uh, prophet is uh, in its its essential nature. Um, so my my biggest frustration as a pastor is probably mirrored in my biggest frustration as a parent, and there's probably some other areas in my life, and I think you're going to be able to relate well to this. Uh, one of the more frustrating things that we experience is uh, when the people that we care about or love, and especially those who are under our care, right, so this is how I think about it in, in parenting, uh, are told the same thing over and over and over and over and then about seven more times, if you're my kids, right? Uh, and then continue on a path of disobedience despite being instructed not to do those things again and again and again and again, right? Um, so parents, you've been there at some point, right? Like, and so out of that, um, here's, here's what tends to happen, right? Like the, the phrase changes, right? Sometimes it's like, that's enough, um, or... Uh, in my house, it's just, okay, okay, right? So uh, there's, there's times where one of them, and all three of them are guilty of this. I'm not going to pin this on one of them. It's a different one every single night. That's the beauty of having three. You always have two that are doing well, and one that just wants to test, just wants to test, right? And so uh, every single night, there's kind of some times where we put them to bed, and then they're going to come out maybe once or twice, and it depends on how my mood is, how many grace period times they're going to get to come out. Michigan lost tonight, so I'm telling you, they come out once. It's, there's no grace period today, right? So uh, what happens is they're told, not now, go back to bed, we'll worry about it in the morning, right? And so sometimes that's like time number six, sometimes it's time number nine if I'm in a real good mood, sometimes it's time number two when Michigan loses, right? And so out of that, uh, eventually there hits a point where the same layer of disobedience has been repeated enough that it simply ends with, okay, and I kick the recliner down on the couch, and I stand up, and I begin to walk towards them, and, and what's about to happen? They know, right? They know at that point. In fact, there's a lot of times there's like frequent like running back into their room, hoping that enough and okay didn't mean okay for sure. It meant okay, I'm going to stand up and walk halfway down the hallway, and if you're in your room really obedient, maybe I'll just not have the resolve to follow through with that, and then they'll get away with that one, right? Like, but, but they know that they've hit the limit, right? It's now the race, the, the grace period has been reached. We're at a point where now comes discipline, now comes the punitive side of things in order to bring you back into compliance, right? Here's, here's what Zephaniah is. Zephaniah is essentially a prophet sent by God to deliver that message. Okay, enough. Now comes my wrath. You see, here's, here's why. Um, up to the time that Zephaniah writes, the people of God in the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah have been 
repetitively disobedient and repetitively idolatrous in much of the same cycles and ways of disobedience. Time and time and time again. Generation after generation after generation. In fact, the quick history is this. God calls out a people from the lands to make his own, a people for his own possession. He raises them up out of a man named Abraham, brings them forth, and as they multiply and spread, he delivers to them covenants and laws that are always going to be grounded in this truth. You are not to be like everybody else. I've made you distinct so that you might represent me. And so the one thing that I don't want you to do is go after the ways of all of these other people who don't know me. You don't marry their people. You don't worship their gods. You don't live according to their laws. You don't desire kings like they desire. And you don't practice the idolatry that they practice. And you know what God's people do? All those things. All those things. Over and over and over and over again, they almost immediately, God gives them a promised land that he had set out for them so that they would be a distinct people. And his instruction is, hey, don't make covenant with the people of these lands. My wrath is going against these people. You're not to be with them. And what do they do? They begin to make covenants with the people of these lands. Not only that, he says, don't intermarry the people of those lands. You intermarry them, you're going to begin to cross up what I want you to do, and you're going to stop worshiping me, and you're going to start focusing on all the things that they focus on. Well, they, they start intermarrying. They start marrying these people. And so then, on top of that, he says, here's the biggest thing. Don't worship their fake gods. I mean, you want to guess? Right? It's exactly what they do. In fact... Over and over and over again, from this point in their history, God is repetitively crushing their idolatrous followings of Baal and Moloch and Asherims, all these fake gods that they have worshipped by the rest of the people in the idolatrous pagan lands around them. And over and over and over again, despite this, the new generation of people are raised up and just follow after these same false gods. Over and over and over again. And so not only that, but after a certain period of time, you walk through the book of Judges, which is just this kind of spiral downward, and moments of repentance are almost immediately followed by a people who gets out of trouble and then goes right away from the Lord and back into the same positions that they had found themselves in before until it gets so bad that they look at all the nations around us and go, we don't need judges who are raised up. We need a king. Give us a king like all of the other nations around us. That they reject God as their king. And yet God in his loving kindness, in his patience, in his forbearance delivers to them a king. He even brings about after some time a king after his own heart in the name of David. Someone who's going to actually follow his ways and statues. And although there's moments of repentance, it doesn't even happen that David's son is on his deathbed, and by the end of his life, he has gone astray, intermarried. In fact, Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, at the height of their power and authority, has intermarried some 700 women from different pagan cultures around him. You're not, you're not supposed to marry those other nations. 700 of them. 
He's not only that, but he's given houses and given himself to all of their idolatrous gods and co-worshipped them along with God. And it doesn't take long for that generation to deteriorate. And so he dies and his kingdom is divided quickly in half. And out of the two kingdoms, one almost immediately, the northern kingdom known as Israel, runs after all of these fake gods. They begin to worship idols, and they almost do it exclusively. There's zero real interest or worship of the Lord. And after almost 200 years of this, what we looked at a few weeks back, if you remember, the prophet Micah is going to tell them it's over. In fact, Micah, the prophet before Zephaniah, uh, about, about 80 years before Zephaniah, comes onto the scene, and essentially his prophecy is okay. Okay to Israel. Okay, it's, it's done. You have disobeyed long enough. You have disregarded me long enough. You have followed idols long enough that you are about to be exiled out. It's, it's over. Time is up for the patience of God. And now comes in his wrath, his discipline to lead you away. Well, in the meantime, the nation of Judah in the south, which included Jerusalem, which included the temple of God, had done a little bit more of uh, this kind of waffling back and forth. And so at times there were some moments of repentance, at times there were some moments of following the Lord, but almost immediately after those times was a quick return into worshiping all kinds of fake gods, living extremely self-oriented lives, and following whatever they pleased to follow outside of the Lord. In fact, when Zephaniah hits the scene, he's looking at a nation that has followed some 250 years. I mean, that's as old as the United States. 250 years of disobedience and disregard with just moments of return to the Lord. And so out of Zephaniah is going to come the words of the Lord toward his nation of Judah that essentially summarize this way. Okay, okay, if this continues, here's what will happen. Pick up with me in verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down to the housetops on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Here's a summary. Okay. Okay, here's, here's what's coming. And and out of this, uh, now you can see why nobody like at a wedding uh, is going to quote Zephaniah, right? Like I, a lot of we just 
We just did your wedding not that long ago, right? Like, we, we incorporate a whole bunch of scripture. There's scripture readings a lot of times. I, I feel like there's always, like, in scripture readings in a wedding, you go to, like, Ephesians 4, and you talk about how you really love one another, or 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is... It's never going to be, hey, I'm about to wipe out the inhabitants on the face of the earth, right? Like, that would, that would make a real awkward, like, wedding vow, Right? And so uh, out of this, uh, here's, here's what tends to happen. In fact, I go so far as to bet that the majority of you, though you may have spent a good deal of your life in churches and listening to sermons, have rarely, if ever, heard someone preach on the prophet Zephaniah is because we have a hard time dealing with and reconciling in our heart what it means to know that we have a God who is defined in the Bible as love. God is love, is what 1 John's going to say, but is also one who in his wrath says, I am going to wipe out this idolatrous people. In fact, you go down to verse 12, he continues on and says, it's going to come about at that time that I'm going to search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish the men who are stagnant in the spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become their plunder, and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but will not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. In the day of, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities in the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Here's here's the question I want to deal with out of a passage that is so heavy in, in a day like today, right? Uh, in fact, I would say one of the reasons that a passage like this nary gets touched in a day like today is because uh, we really want to define God in a way that makes us feel better about him, and we certainly don't want to define God as someone who is looking at the disobedience towards sin and saying, okay, the time has come where the best thing for me to do is to pour out my wrath upon this. And so, so here's the question. What do we learn from the wrath of God that, that might bring some word of encouragement or truth or help for us? Right? Like, because the goal for, for us is not to come here and be together tonight and leave uh, mightily depressed and feel like, oh man, it's just bad things are coming and uh, we're just as deserving as God's wrath as these who Zephaniah talks to and just leave in that. And so uh, ultimately, uh, I think the best thing for us to do as believers and trusting in who God is according to the fullness of his character, which is described for us in the scriptures, is not to be embarrassed or shy away from the fact that God who is love could be one who has wrath and anger in him and desires to pour that out upon his people at times. And so uh, ultimately the question becomes this. What, what is the wrath or the anger of God? Right? We use those terms synonymously, though they might be a little distinct in and of themselves. Tonight we'll use them synonymously. 
synonymously, why is the wrath or anger of God a good thing for us to, to study, to know, to understand, and to ultimately to glorify God with? And, and Zephaniah, in his prophecy, is going to give us, uh, I think, four things that really answer that question. So I want to just list them out and kind of work through each one of these according to the scripture. Uh, here's the first one. God's wrath is always poured out against sin. The, the anger or the wrath of God is always going to be directed toward sin. Look, look at it here as he's talking to the people of Judah through the mouth of Zephaniah. Pick up in verse 4, uh, and we'll read through verse 6. It says, So I'll stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. And those who have turned their back from following the Lord. And those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Ultimately, God says this. I'm, I'm going to pour out my wrath against sin. And in particular, the sin of Israel was a sin of idolatry. He lists out four different places where he sees them as an idolatrous people. The first is that uh, they are still following this false god known as Baal that was professed in the pagan lands around them. What's so crazy about this, like there's, there's a lot of things that make it foolish to worship idols. In fact, uh, we looked at it in Habakkuk just a couple weeks ago that uh, when you make your own gods out of your own craftsmanship, right, when they're just these pagan temples and pagan idols made out of human hands, that they have no breath in them, and so it's silly to worship them. And so Baal, in particular, uh, bears an awkward significance in the nation of Israel because of what happened 200 years earlier. So in the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, there happened to be a real evil king named Ahab. Uh, you may know his wife was named Jezebel. Uh, she was kind of like the pinnacle of women who you wouldn't really want to be named after in the Bible. Uh, really kind of a horrible person in many ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, and while they move forth in their evil, she leads the way in taking the people of Israel away from, even further away from the real God, and bringing, her into, bringing them into worshiping this false god known as Baal. Now, not only are they worshiping this idol, but she's set up massive temples to him. She's made fake prophets to his name. And out of this, God, in one of his enough moments, uh, droughts the land. Says, no rain. There won't be any rain. He has a prophet named Elijah. He says, you go tell them that it's not going to rain. And so for three years, not a drop of rain. And, and the land is starving and dying at the hands of these fake prophets and this fake God. And while it's painful, all of their rage is poured out towards Elijah until he shows up at Ahab and Jezebel's house and goes, okay, let's settle this. And here's the, here's the idea. Let's settle this once for all. Let's go to the mountain. Uh, 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite accounts in all the scripture. So we're going to Mount Carmel. We're going to set up two altars. We'll kill a couple bulls, we'll set them on the altar, and here's what we'll do. You take all of your fake prophets, all of these people that worship Baal, and you let them go and cry out and tell Baal to take fire, rain it down from heaven, and consume that altar. And he says, you go first. And, and if you win, kill me. That's fine. 
Go first. Give it a shot. They go out. They spend the whole day crying out, dancing around, cutting themselves, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Elijah, like for his credit as a man of God, is just mocking them like crazy. Like, hey, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's on the toilet. Like, you better call out louder. Then they start cutting themselves, and he's like, I don't know. That seems a little weird even for me. Let's just be done with this. Stop. Let me show you what's going to happen. He goes up to the altar. He goes, just in case you don't believe Take buckets of water. They get tons of water poured on the altar. Make sure you know what's about to happen. He kneels down, prays to the Lord, fire from heaven. Consumes the offering on the altar, consumes the wood on the altar, consumes the fire that had been poured out in the moat around the altar, consumes the stones that were on the altar. Would have been an extraordinary sight to be seen unbelievable out of this he goes and slaughters 450 of the prophets of this fake god and looks at the people of god and says now who do you believe seems pretty powerful right seems like you wouldn't want to go back to Baal. zephaniah writes 200 years later a few generations go by they start worshiping him again not only that But then they've also added, not only this fake God, but they've added people who are worshiping the stars, right? That's what he says when they go to the the housetops, to the hosts of heaven, they bow down and swear to them that they're looking and going, oh, the real God is in the stars and the constellations and we'll ultimately know that something in there is what's going to guide us and lead us and they've ignored the Lord. He says not only that, but they've worshiped Milcom alongside of God, which is another word for the name of Molech. This uh, not only is this a, a, an idol away from the true God, but it's a heinous one. Uh, Moloch demanded child sacrifice of pagan nations, and so they would take their newborns and kill them by way of fire at the hands of this crazy, foolish, false god. And then, not only that, um, we I think we tend to look at those and be like, man, those those people are idiots. No wonder God is mad at them. And yet, here's what He says in verse six: and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. You know what the most common idol is in our culture? It's ourselves. He says, he says, and there's a whole host of people in Judah who just have no interest in inquiring to me. They've just tightened up their bootstraps and said, I can do this on my own. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And God says, okay, enough of this. My wrath is poured out against sin. When you and I walk away from the Lord, his desire is to see that change because he is the best thing for you. And so you want to walk away from him and you want to walk in disobedience from him and you want to not confess or trust him. What he's ultimately going to do is give his wrath, stumbling blocks, put his anger in your way so that you might return to him and turn away from your wicked ways. Which brings me to the second thing. Wrath, the wrath of God, will always be and is always an extension of God's justice. He's looking and coming and searching Jerusalem to punish the men who are stagnant in their spirit and say in their hearts, the Lord will do no good. He says their wealth will become their 
plunder. That he's coming after not those who are innocent, but those who deserve justice from God. The thing is, um, we, we have, I think, innate to our being a desire to see justice when we're wronged. Right? Like, you catch that? Um, when, when we experience a wrong done to us, our great desire is that justice would be served. Now, when we're the ones who are driving 92 in a 70, you looking for justice? Right? Give them justice. Give me grace. Is that not our basic mentality as human beings? Right? Like, when we're wronged, give us justice. For us, please give me mercy and grace. And yet, deep down inside of us, I think what we ought to realize and recognize when we kind of press back against the anger or the wrath of God, which I think is becoming more and more popular in our culture, is that we are bred in us, core to our soul and being, a people who want to see justice served. That was the chief problem that Habakkuk had when he came to the Lord, if you remember a few weeks ago. God, there is no justice in this land. Uh, a few years back, I had an opportunity to travel to South Africa on a short-term mission trip. And uh, we went to, went to a city called Durban, um, well-developed, super wealthy city, uh, steeped in heavy, heavy racism. Uh, and so out of this, you had uh, white and Indian populations who were extremely wealthy, well-to-do, uh, looked every bit the part of an upscale modern American city or better than that. And all along the way, on hillsides, uh, st stuck in the middle of the city, were these uh, complete shanty towns, houses built out of pallet wood and old billboard signs that housed the entire black population for the city. Uh, electrical wires ran in and stolen off of the lines. And poverty, like most of us, have never seen or experienced in our entire lives. And so uh, really fascinating. You could be in these areas uh, and look out and just a couple hundred yards away see multi-million dollar homes whose backyards looked upon uh, some of the most devastating poverty you could ever imagine. And out of this, uh, remember specifically the missionary who was there on the ground all the time talking about how frequent it was that in these communities there would be rapes, there would be murders, there would be massive amounts of theft and I said, well, what, what do they do about that? And he gave me a confused look like, nothing. 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 What do they do about that? There's, there's nothing they do about that. And I remember feeling such a deep longing that justice would come to this place. Right? God's wrath is ultimately a good thing for us because it's a recognition that unjust, evil behavior, sin, wouldn't be left unpunished forever. That when you and I are wronged, when you and I are sinned against, that we can trust that the Lord will bring about justice. That we don't live our lives in bitter envy or seeking to get back at somebody who did wrong against us. Why? Because we can trust that the wrath of God brings about justice. Now, the thing is, we just said, well, we don't want that, though. I don't want that. I want mercy. 
I don't want justice. Uh, I've been guilty of a whole multitude of wrongs. In fact, the idea of not seeking or inquiring the Lord, turning my back from Him, serving alongside with Him, these deep idolatries in my heart, they resonate with me because I've been there before. And so what do we do about this? What's the wrath of God, the justice of God meant to make us do? Well, Zephaniah answers that on behalf of the Lord's word as well. If you turn to chapter 2, what you're going to find is God's shifting gears into man's response to this coming wrath. Here's what he says. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like chaff before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Here's the first thing that the wrath of God is meant to cause in us. It is a repentance and humility in the people of God. That the wrath of God is always meant to bring about a turning back to him in humility, to give up of our pride, to give up of our obstinate and selfish ways, and to return to the Lord. Look at how he says it. You should seek the Lord. You should carry out his ordinances. You should seek righteousness, and you should seek humility. Now, let me say a couple things about this. First of all, uh, seeking the Lord means that you ought to be in repentance and stop seeking all of the other things that are so important to you that you put them on a pedestal before God. Now, not only that, but he says then you ought to carry out his ordinances and keep his commands. Seeking the Lord is also seeking righteousness uh, because, here's here's what I think has infiltrated the American church at times, that we've uh, changed what repentance means to uh, being sorry or sorrowful. Right? There's, there's sorrow that leads to repentance, and there's sorrow that doesn't, and it's wrapped up in whether or not we're obedient and righteous in the Lord following such conviction and sorrow. Um, the example I always go back to in the scripture right, is uh, at Jesus' betrayal and death, there's two disciples that are specifically mentioned as leaving him. Right? Do you remember who they are? Uh, one has sold him for 30 pieces of silver, Judas. Right? The other... Uh, in his pride, said, hey, everybody else will leave you. I'm not going anywhere. Remember that? Peter. Peter, Peter the apostle, Peter the head of the early church, uh, and Jesus looks at him and goes, no, no, no. The rooster's going to crow, and you're going to curse me multiple times, and you're going to think, oh, he's Jesus, and, and so that's exactly what happens. Uh, and at the end of this, here's, here's how it continues. Both of those men feel a great deal of sorrow and regret and pain over what they did. Peter weeps bitterly. Judas uh, feels sorrow. And one goes out and hangs himself. And one repents and comes back to the Lord. And in obedience and righteousness, seeks out the Lord in humility. Because, Because ultimately, the last thing, wrath, the wrath of God, is meant to, in us, produce a great deal of humble love and faith in Jesus Christ because he absorbs it for us. Because 
uh, as every word, page, truth in the scripture is going to do, Zephaniah ultimately is going to conclude his prophecy not looking backwards or not looking immediately to the coming wrath of God, which for the people of God was at hand in the nation of Judah, uh, but rather is going to look ahead to the fact that you and I, no matter what the circumstances on earth, remember the overarching truths of the minor prophets, no matter what the circumstances on earth, our hope will never be realized in good circumstances. It will never be crushed in bad circumstances because it doesn't rest on this earth. Our hope is in Christ. And so the wrath of God coming is still something that we rejoice in because God's wrath was ultimately not given to us, but rather we got mercy instead of justice by the truth of Jesus Christ. God's wrath poured out upon him instead of you and I. Look at chapter 3, how he closes this. In verse 12, he says, I'll leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. In verse, verse 19, he finishes it this way. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. And I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. And I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Here's, here's the most glorious truth, perhaps, in all of Scripture. That God's just wrath towards sin was poured out not on me. And for those of you who in humility have placed faith in Christ, not on you. That you no longer need to rest in the wrath of God, but rather that it has been poured out upon Jesus Christ. So that you are an object of grace and mercy because God looks upon you and sees Jesus, not you. He, he sees it paid in full. Jesus has taken all of God's wrath, all of the just punishment for our sins and placed it upon himself on the cross. We're, we were just talking about this last week in our Sunday school class that uh, Jesus before he is betrayed, goes to a garden and, and praying to the Lord in such agony that he's sweating blood, he says, if you would, let this cup pass from me. It's, it's not the pain of the cross. It's not the physical death that he's about to experience that he's asking to be alleviated of. The cup he speaks of is mentioned again in the Bible in Revelation chapter 14. It's the cup of God's anger, the wine of his wrath poured out in full strength is what the Bible says. That Jesus knew that upon the cross he would take on the sins of the world. That he was dying, taking God's wrath for you and I and making atonement, making a way for us to be right before God as an object of his mercy and his grace through faith rather than an object of his justice and his wrath. 
And the key to all of it was that you and I, in humility, seeking humility, giving up the pride of self, would rest not in our own abilities, not in our idolatries, not in anything else in this world, but that our faith would rest in Christ alone to save us and that our lives out of gratitude for that would be transformed. That uh, as we close, we're going to sing about this. And I, I think you, you keep this in mind, that the sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Because in that, my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Pray with me, and then we'll sing one more song. Lord, I'm strangely thankful that you are a God of wrath and justice. I think that is so countercultural, and I think that is so out of the ordinary in what uh, we hear and know and, and want to um, be told is, is appropriate and fits in with the mainstream. And yet, I desire deeply to see your name glorified and injustice not standing and not continuing that you would bring about what is true and right and good on this earth as it is in heaven. And yet above all of those things, I can desire that and I can wish that because I know with confidence that I am not a child of your wrath, but a child of your grace and it has nothing to do with me. I'm not good enough to be one, and no one else in this room is. We deserve your wrath. And yet, in your love for us, you poured it out upon Jesus. I want every ounce of my being to be faithful to that. I want to trust wholly our debt is paid, it's paid in full. Let that be the resounding cry of our soul tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand, sing one more song with us.